Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Singapore Noodles podcast. I'm your host, Pamelia Chia, and every week I speak to a different guest who is keeping the Singaporean food heritage alive in his or her own way. So today's episode is a bit different, and it is one that I feel quite nervous about. So in June this year, Paranakan restaurant Violet Wound Singapore launched their Nonya Nasi Ambeng family tray. And a lot of the people from the Malay community were not pleased, and they took to social media to express their discontent. So one of the people who called the restaurant out on Instagram was Azimin Saini. So he is the editor of Lifestyle Asia, and he is the founder of Tempe Culture as well. So he wrote on his Instagram account, Nasi Ambeng is of Javanese origin and traditionally eaten during religious ceremonies as a communal activity. It has deep cultural significance and slapping Nanya on this and then profiting off my culture is not okay. It seemed as though this issue was a really multifaceted one because people took offense at a myriad of things, the price, the naming, the creative liberty of staining the rice with blue pea flour, and also the lack of traditional nasi ambeng side dishes like urap. There were a lot of comments online saying that this was cultural appropriation, but there were just as many people feeling like it was an overreaction or that fusion is part and parcel of our Singaporean food culture. So I decided to invite Azimin or Z on this show to have a chat. And to be honest, I was quite nervous about speaking about this on the podcast because it is such a sensitive topic and it was also potentially an uncomfortable conversation for both of us to have. But as Z says in the podcast, and you'll hear later, having honest dialogue and conversation is so crucial to having racial harmony in Singapore. And I hope that you'll approach listening to this episode with an open mind and a willingness to listen to perspectives that might be different from your own. Hello. Hey. It's so nice that we're finally getting to speak. I mean, we've been chatting on Instagram on and off. A lot of my followers have been kind of asking me about my take on the issue and what I think. But I always feel like I'm not qualified to talk about it necessarily because, you know, I I mean, I'm not from the Malay community or the Paranakan community. So I'm not really sure about the exact sentiments behind this incident. It's a... It's not, it's not an easy thing to talk about. It's a very heavy topic. Um, but at the same time, I also recognize that it is an important conversation to have. Uh, I think some of it may be a little bit uncomfortable for, for the both of us and also for your listeners. But I think where there is discomfort, there will be growth. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm sure not all of our perspectives will be completely aligned. But, yeah. you know, I think the good thing is that we're actually setting aside time to have this conversation, you know? Yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah. I feel that there is so little cross-cultural dialogue, you know, in Singapore nowadays. Do you feel the same? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's better now than it was before. Um, I think there is some level of introspection happening in Singapore just to kind of look back and uh, see how far we've come as a country and with that, with all the different cultures. So I think... I think it's happening. The fact that we're even having this conversation is, is part of that larger movement. You said that it is happening more now than before, but what do you mean by before? Before, well, when I started food writing, there wasn't much uh, discourse and not, there's just not much attention paid on our own cuisines. Right? When I first started food writing about 10 years ago, 
it was mostly about French food, Japanese food, um, stuff which are not local to us and how we looked up to it as, uh, as an experience to value. But right now, what we're seeing is that people are ordering kueh, they're learning how to make kueh, you know, traditional recipes, which, which we were not looking at, you know, just five years ago. It could be because in my immediate circle of people, uh, you know, people are being a little bit more aware of our heritage. It could be that. But in general, if you were just to look through Instagram, just look through the, the, the conversations happening, there, there is a greater awareness of appreciating our own cultures. Mm. I definitely agree that now there is this greater uh, sensitivity and this greater interest in general to want to know more about heritage, food and cooking in general. But what yeah. about learning from another race or a different culture? Do you find that it's very prevalent in Singapore? Well, I think the thing is, recipe books have always existed, right? Uh, and let's say even from the home, like what my, my parents cook, what, what my mom cook, even what I cook, it would be very dull to just be cooking the same thing every single uh, day, like the same cuisine. It's the same, the same thing as when we dine out. You know, even if you go to a food court, sometimes you just want to have something from the Japanese stall, even though it may not be all that great. But you do tend to look for variety. Mm. Um, so for instance, like my mom the other day, she made uh, fishball noodles, fishball from scratch, oh, which wow. is a recipe she looked up online. Uh, so again, you know, it's not like we're going to have like, I don't know, run down every day or something. <laughs> yeah. We will naturally look for, look for variety. And I think that's something that's always been part of who we are. Like even if you look at old cookbooks, you know, you have all these vintage looking retro Singapore cookbooks and there, there's always a bunch of recipes from other communities in there. And that's great. Mm. I'm asking you that question because when I first started Singapore Noodles, I remember looking online and looking at the variety of food websites that we have uh, that actually share recipes. And a lot of them tend to focus on Chinese uh, recipes and dishes. And I didn't see a lot of, uh, I mean, comparatively, there was significantly lesser resources out there for, say, Eurasian cooking. So do you feel that way that... Um, a spotlight has been shown on a particular cu cuisine in Singapore? I mean, yeah, for sure. Um, Malay, Malay recipes, Malay cuisine in general, uh, there are not many blogs, not many websites out there. Even uh, Indonesian recipes, for instance, right? There are not many websites out there in English catering to what, what I would say either a regional or a global audience. A lot of it is written in Bahasa. Mm. So what is automatically accessible to me and my family may not necessarily be accessible to the rest of the population. Mm. Uh, a lot of it also has to do with a language barrier. Um, the thing about Malay cuisine in Singapore is that we are a community that is a hodgepodge of communities from across the region, right? Uh, like my family, for instance, we are Javanese. I have friends who are Bugis. Uh, that's not an MRT station. Uh, you know, Nasi Padang comes from the Minang community in, in Sumatra and Nasi Padang is such a huge thing, right? Yeah. Uh, at least for this, 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 uh, this sort of cuisine. Uh, so there is a hodgepodge of, of cultures even within the community. Mm. And a lot of that doesn't get transmitted out. Um, yeah. Within the Singapore context, because I think a lot of uh, the people who are transmitting this form of culture, this form of food and recipes tend to be housewives, right? You know, they're just at home, they're cooking, maybe they're sharing with friends and family, but they're not exactly putting themselves out there. Yeah. Uh, and then when, if you look at the Indonesian context, um, the, the country itself is still relatively 
more fluent in Bahasa as compared to uh, in English. You know, if you look at Singapore and Malaysia, we were colonized by the British and we do have a leg up in that we were uh, English educated from young. So, I mean, that's not to, you know, uh, offend any Indonesian listeners or anything, but there is a, a language barrier. There are thousands, hundreds and thousands of recipes written in Indonesian, which I can access, but which I know others can't. Mm. Yeah. Do you feel like there is a barrier for Singaporean Malays in particular to come out and really share their recipes? Because um, previously I was speaking with a Malay guy in Singapore and um, he was asking me about Singapore noodles and I was saying that one struggle that I've been facing is that I've been finding it difficult to reach out to people from the Malay community to share their recipes because they're always so um, hesitant to. Maybe it's, you know, like what you say, it's like a language barrier. But he he kind of like turned and asked asked me the same question. So like, why do you think that's so? You know, in kind of like a, an aggressive way. So I was wondering if you think there is any backstory behind behind this thing. I mean, I, uh, it's not so much a language barrier. I think it's more of um who you know, really, right? Uh, it's it's a difficult question to answer because you know my my life experience isn't somebody else's life experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but in general, the authorities in Malay cooking are pretty much the aunties at home, mm. you know, uh, and uh, they may not necessarily be the most active in socializing in communities um, across mm-hmm. the board, you know. Uh, so yeah. you know, just housewives in general just mm-hmm. tend to home take care of the family yeah. uh, many may be may get involved in the community and even then uh and this is this is not criticism in any way but also the malay community these um authorities in the food also need to start putting themselves a little bit more out there because if we don't nobody else will yeah so so i was in a very unique position where i am probably the only malay food writer right now that i know uh, in my position at the very least. And people started to turn to me and go like, you know what, you really should start talking a lot more about Malay food, Indonesian food. You know, you have this mass of like knowledge within you that is not currently being transmitted. Um, it is a huge undertaking because hmm. in the first place, the, uh, you know, the Malay community in Singapore is, like I said, again, a hodgepodge. And that itself encompasses easily 300 million people and different communities across the region. Hmm. Uh, I can't possibly be that person on my own. I can share my own perspective, but definitely I'm not the representative voice for everybody. Mm. Uh, so I do feel that we need more, represent, more, more, representat- uh, more representation from the community itself. Interestingly, I think uh, earlier this morning, I was reading a New York Times article about a, a cookbook author. She just released an Indonesian cookbook. And, uh, and one of my food writer friends, his name is Kevindra. He is a uh, food writer based in Jakarta. Uh, he says in his words that the cuisine itself needs more ambassadors. Mm. So we could be at this point where the culture and the people practicing the culture are sort of looking back into ourselves, into our culture, into our community and wondering how can we have more conversations about these things. Hmm. So if you ask me, I think that this is just a start. Yeah, I totally agree with you that more young Singaporeans of any 
of any racial descent should be yeah. stepping forward as ambassadors of their own cuisine, of their own heritage. Yes. Um, and I, I totally agree with you about um, how aunties find it really hard to step out of their shell and to be kind of in the spotlight because they're not used to social media, then they're, they're not media trained. So it's really difficult for them. But I'm just looking at Instagram and I, and I see Chinese, you know, I'm just speaking from my social circle. I see Chinese people being very vocal, young Chinese people being very vocal about preserving their own recipes and sharing these recipes. But I'm not sure if you see the same in uh, young Malays. Is that in your experience? Do you see your, your Malay friends sharing recipes and uh, I, knowledge? Yeah, to be honest, I'm not seeing many young Malay people sharing their home recipes. They very well could be, but maybe I just haven't come across them. Um, and even then, like the people I'm in touch with are the people who are already working in FMB. You know, there are chefs working in kitchens and obviously, you know, if that's your career, you don't exactly want to set up a blog, writing more about it on your weekends <laughs> or like whenever you have a day off, right? Uh, so yeah, to be, to be entirely frank, I'm not seeing these conversations happening and I wish that more people would share. Uh, but let's see where this goes, right? Yeah. What do you think are the potential hindrances to, say, a young Malay stepping forward to sharing his cuisine or his heritage? For me, if you ask me, it really is a lack of interest because um, Malay cuisine in all its forms is very laborious. It is very time consuming. Uh, you know, we, we're all talking about how Pranakan cuisine requires all these things and time you know, consuming methods. It is exactly the same in Malay cuisine, right? Yeah. Um, learning it from scratch, especially if you did not grow up helping your grandmother in the kitchen can be uh, difficult. A lot of Malay cooking just goes by feel, goes by hand, right? Your intuition. You're not going to put like a tablespoon of this and like five chilies or whatever. It just, <laughs> you know, you stand by the pot and you just shove everything in it and hope yeah. for the best. So it, it can be intimidating, I feel, for somebody who, has, who may have an interest but may not necessarily have the necessary um, palate and skills, very loosely speaking here, to be able to back it up. Mm. So can you tell me a little bit more about Malay cuisine? You said that it's very laborious. And I think yeah. one of the most distinctive traits of Malay cooking is the making of rempa. But other than that, are there any other key techniques that you have picked up along the way, along the, along the years? I think a lot of it, uh, it's, it's also time. So, okay, I mean, obviously there are fast recipes like, say, uh, a chicken soup, for instance, you know, which is much faster than, say, a rundown, which, which if you do it properly, would take like six, seven, eight hours. Um, you need to know when the flavors have come together, right? Like the, the rumpa could be one thing. You, you temper it, you put it in the, in the oil and all that, you, you cook it, but then if the recipe requires long braising, you need to know exactly when to stop hmm. and what takes time. So let's say somebody who is completely new to the cuisine, and I'm using rendang as a very generic, most well-known uh, well dish, right? Yeah. If you have never had rendang in your life, or let's say you've only had it once or twice, and then you are faced with this task to recreate the dish, do you really know when to stop? You know, like when to stop the long braising process? How dry is too dry? How hmm. brown is too brown? You know, and how do you know whether you're pounding the karisi the right way to get it the right texture? Mm. So a lot of these are things I learned over the years from my grandmother, from my mom. Uh, these are things that take time to learn. 
Mm. You know, it's interesting that you call it a brace because it's the closest thing in the English language to describe what it is. But it's really not a brace, is it? It's, it's more not. really, really dry. Yeah, just like literally just waiting. And uh, actually, the, the, interestingly, the word rendang actually comes from the word, uh, it's actually a verb yeah. to describe the process. Mm. You know, to merendang is actually to let it simmer over low heat and to stir continuously. And that word doesn't really exist in English. Um, so, yeah. You know, it's interesting that you said uh, to stir it continuously. Because I, I see a lot of recipes out there for, say, 14-hour, 16-hour rendang that has been slow-cooked in the oven. So do you feel like it takes away from the spirit of rendang in that sense? No, not at all. I think it's fantastic that people are doing it in the oven. I've never tried it before. Uh, hmm. I don't think I dare to. <laughs> because, again, I've never done it before, right? Like, I, I don't want to fool around with a recipe that I don't have confidence in when I know I can do something, uh, something I grew up learning a little bit possibly better than, than what is done in the oven. Uh, no, I don't think there is against the spirit of what an rendang should be. In fact, in, you know, it's, it's modern day life. I mean, I've tried making it in a pressure cooker and then letting it just sort of, uh, you know, let it slow cook mm. until it becomes dry. But the flavors, the taste, the texture, it's just not really the same. So what do you think is the current perception of Malay cuisine in Singapore? Yeah, so like in previous years, whenever uh, Malay cuisine comes up in the newspapers and all that, it's always been seen in an unsavory light. It's always tied into the diet, to obesity, to high cholesterol levels, to you know um, diabetes and things like that. Not very flattering things to think about a food, right? Yeah. Um, and then, you know, in pre previous articles, you've always seen... Uh, Pictures of Nasi Lemak and Prata placed side by side, saying that, you know, uh, the community needs to cut back on these things. And, uh, and while it's probably written by journalists who, are, who cover health rather than food, you know, the different sections of the newspaper, different sections of publication, different writers and different editors, right? Mm. Um, it contributes to the ongoing narrative of what Malay food is. Yeah. You know, interestingly, I spoke to Chef Devagi a while ago and we were talking about dosis. And you know how dosis traditionally have a really high rice content. And so it leads to problems like obesity, like diabetes. And I was just asking her what she feels about this tension between health and heritage. Because clearly there is a lot of um, the use of oil and the use of coconuts is really heavy in Malay cuisine. So how do you feel um, we can move forward in embracing our heritage while also being health conscious? Yeah, so I guess the thing about heritage foods is that it was sort of created or invented out of necessity in a very different time. We were probably a lot more active. People were toiling the fields, you know. Uh, we were not sitting in desk-bound jobs. Um, and I think we sort of also need to evolve, right? Um, one thing which we do at home right now, which I know many people will roll their eyes and probably <laughs> judge me for saying so, is that we have substituted all oils to use olive oil. Ah. So, you know, and, and I know that people would, uh, would, would judge us for like, A, for sacrificing of flavor and all that. And the fact that maybe olive oil, when it's heated, it doesn't have as many good qualities, mm. but something has to give, right? So 
um, for instance, even when we make our usual, oh, my mom makes her asam pedas or whatever, she would use olive oil to, to temper the rumpa. Hmm. Um, oh, does it work? Uh, yeah, yeah, it does. I mean, obviously, you need an olive oil that functions better in high heat rather than something you dress a salad in. Hmm. And if you go to the supermarket, there are options. Yeah, but I would imagine that the flavor of olive is quite strong in olive oil, right? Yeah, so I think the oils that are made for cooking at slightly higher temperatures uh, are not as strongly flavored. Mm. So, I mean, I have experimented with different olive oils and like, you know, sometimes I do get very good <laughs> olive oils for work and I would try to use it and then the flavor is like, oh my God, I'm never going to do that again. <laughs> um, but we have found certain brands that work. Yeah, so another one is, um, actually, to, technically, we don't, use, we don't really have that many recipes which, which use coconut milk, which... Uh, seems to be all the rage in the West right now, right? Like coconut milk latte and all that nonsense. Um, <laughs> we don't actually use that much coconut milk in our cooking. Like in a, in a single week, maybe, I uh, probably have one dish that uses a lemak sort of um, uh, gravy, not, not, not gravy, sorry, like a lemak sort of recipe. Mm. Say for instance, sayur lode, which is very yeah. much coconut milk based. Uh, it's pretty pretty much just like maybe once a week, probably even less. You know, other times it really is just simple vegetable stir fries, or something like uh, ayam masak merah. If you are familiar with that, so that's like chicken that's cooked in tomatoes and you know chilies and all sorts of yummy delicious things. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's just a matter of reducing the oil content and knowing knowing when to be healthy, um, mm. when you have to be. So I guess I'm, I'm lucky in that my family is relatively, we are quite health conscious, right? So my mom would always make sure that there's always vegetables on the table. There's always, you know, a balanced meal. The rice that we use is the low GI dream rice. Oh my uh, God. Again, <laughs> yeah, I know. It, 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 sounds, it sounds like we are taking it a little bit too seriously, but you know what? My parents are of a certain age yeah. and uh, you've got to take care of the health, right? Yeah, I mean, same with my mom. My mom has been adopting a diet of brown rice for the longest time. And for me, I just never felt comfortable with it because I feel that brown rice eats differently with curry as opposed yeah. to white rice. You know, the way it absorbs the curry is completely different. So, I mean, I'm still kind of grappling with it because, yeah. you know, now that I'm in Australia, the produce is so great and the vegetables really shine on their own. So yeah. you really don't need to mask it with anything. But at the same yeah. time, I, I really want to connect with my heritage, you know, being so far away. And so that is one of the tensions that I feel. So I feel, like there is, I feel like there is a time for us to think about health and there is a time for us to think about heritage. So for instance, during Hari Raya, which is, you know, once a year, we go all out. We don't sacrifice on like health or whatever if it's gonna be this amount of coconut milk it's gonna be this amount of coconut milk <laughs> you know it's only once a year um definitely we don't eat like that every day right mm. so. yeah you know i was also thinking about that because i read this article written about chicken rice made with brown rice on the newspaper and um i think the writer was writing about how we are losing our heritage if all of the chicken rice stalls replace white rice with brown rice. And I think, sorry? That would be a tragedy, actually. <laughs> yeah, and I was reading one of the comments uh, of yeah. the opinion article, and the comment was like, oh, just eat chicken, like eat the real, de uh, real deal less often. But I was thinking it's quite sad if you can only enjoy heritage food or your own country's food just maybe mm. once a week, you know? 
Yeah. So yeah, it's a tricky, tricky one. I think you just have to go out there and exercise if you want to eat more. <laughs> There's just no <laughs> shortcuts. <laughs> yeah, I know. I've been following you on Instagram and I've been seeing all your workouts and your transformation photos. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I eat so much for a living. There is just no way. Something's got to give, right? Yeah, yeah. True. <laughs> I would love to find out if you feel that Malay cuisine is very tied with symbolism because I understand that you incorporate a lot of Malay food into your rituals. Is that right? Uh, yeah. So I wouldn't call them rituals because that sounds uh, quite. That sounds a little bit uh, a little bit too out there. Um, <laughs> but okay, for for instance, like um, I'm not the biggest authority on 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 ceremonial food, um, but for instance, nasi ambeng, right? If you think about that, there is a, uh, how do I put it? There is something that we, which we call a kanduri. So that's like a communal sort of feast where everybody in the family or extended family would get together for, for a religious occasion. It could be to send somebody off for the hajj. It could be, uh, you know, to be a, bit, a little bit more somber. So it's to commemorate somebody's passing. Um, but that's typically when people get together and they will, they, will, they will be reading from the Quran and things like that. But it's also a time of socializing. And that's really when the housewives really go all out with their recipes. So Nasi Ambang is a big part of that. Or at least it used to be in, in history. So this, it is a, a Javanese tradition where, where the dish, right, if you think about the white rice is surrounded by a multi, multitude of different dishes and different ingredients. So... In, in the past, what this used to represent was the land, the earth, and the sea. Oh, wait, the land, the earth are the same thing, sorry. <laughs> the land, the air, and the sea. Yeah. <laughs> so it's supposed to represent the Javanese universe on a plate. Mm. You know, and in that sense, it is quite, uh, it, is, it is beautiful in that sense because then you are sort of giving thanks to, to the earth. You're giving thanks to your environment for, for providing you so much bounty. This is a very fertile region after all. So that is that is the symbolism of food, and of course, you know, in, in during Malay weddings, also for instance, we would give out um, red stained eggs. I think mm -hmm. we all know what that's supposed to represent. And during my birthday every year, we do have a Javanese tradition where my grandmother used to make um, a, what what I would translate into English as a red and white porridge. What it actually is is. Um, it's like rice. It's cooked with coconut milk. That's a little bit savory. And also rice cooked with what we call gula mira, which is like, you know, red sugar. It's not exactly red. So that's like buba pute buba mira, right? So uh, to, to be had on the birthday. So we all also know what that's supposed to represent. So there are all these traditions dating back from, you know, ancient times, which are still sort of being practiced and carried out today. So that's just some examples that I have. You know, now that we're speaking on the topic of nasi ambeng, is it nasi ambeng or nasi ambeng? It's nasi ambeng. Ah, okay, okay. Yeah. So is that a big part of your culture? I mean, is that something that is safe for special occasions or is it more like an everyday kind of thing? So it used to be something for special occasions, a communal dish. But, you know, in recent times, obviously, you know, restaurants start putting it out and then you can pretty much have it pretty much whenever. So let's say when we have a family gathering, like just within my immediate family, uh, we, would, we would order it as well. So it doesn't have to be tied into a religious occasion. Um, but that's the roots of the dish, basically. Mm. And what was it about this whole Violet Wind incident that made you so upset? I mean, I was looking uh, on Instagram and I saw yeah. that, you know, you had pretty 
vocal views about the the whole incident yeah that was uh that was an interesting period of my life shall i say <laughs> um i mean okay so so we were talking about cultural appropriation and all that stuff here right yeah um you know these things have been simmering simmering for a really long time in the community in fact since i was a kid like people were just talking about how uh our recipes are sort of being quote unquote taken and not being represented by by the community itself mm. um so when when the nasi ambang uh, saga rolled out um what I, exactly happened was that i was just busy minding my own business and i was getting screenshots sent my way and people were like hey dude you really got to say something man you have a platform you have an audience and you have authority you got to say something about it <laughs> and then i was like do i really want to be that person you know this it's during circuit breaker this are bad times for fmb but at the same time somebody needs to blow the lid open right and talk about it uh mm-hmm. and start the conversation going so i was outside and i went back home i sat down for an hour and i literally went soul searching <laughs> during that short period of time as i was like, do i really want to do this so i discussed with a couple of uh you know with with a couple of my closest friends and like uh, should, should, should we go ahead with this because the fallout could be pretty big mm. and everybody was like uh you just got to do it we it's time we get the conversation started at a bigger level mm. so i hit post <laughs> and, and then everything just sort of you know fell into place and because i guess i have so many contacts in the media i get journalists calling me up asking me for quotes and before i knew it was on scnp and all these places uh which is all right which is good um but at the same time there was a part of me which wanted to shy away from the controversy even mm. though i knew it was necessary um i know that it's not a pleasant thing to be accused of you know and yeah. it's always a matter of uh impact versus intent right somebody mm. may not be intentionally you know doing something but the impact nevertheless is there and when the impact has been eating at you for years and years and years eventually it will open the floodgates and everything will will start rushing so mm. what struck me was that even though even though i i guess i was probably the most vocal i was not i was not i was i was also the person sort of acting as a voice for other people who are who may not necessarily be courageous enough to talk about what they believe in and by these people i'm also talking about like other malay chefs working in kitchens in very good kitchens michelin star chef uh, michelin star kitchens you know having his opinions but not necessarily wanting to voice them out so i had to be that person mm. and thankfully there were other people who joined the chorus so you know you know yeah. the heat wasn't, wasn't so terrible on me so interestingly we also had a uh, a, a closed door dialogue actually with um violet boon's daughter Oh. Uh, to sort of have a post mortem on what went wrong what could be better and things like that and in general um they are doing a fantastic job in terms of talking about cultures because they do want to the restaurant does want to represent um food and cultures from around the region but the problem with that is that when when you set yourself up for that task uh you will always be held to a higher standard yeah You no know, and when you want to represent food you are pretty much like a museum you need to have your your ability to communicate correctly succinctly and in a way that is truly representative uh of who you want to represent you know it has to be proper 
So I think during that period when uh, the first screenshots from Instagram came to me, they called it the Peranaka Nasi Ambang. I think a lot of people were riled up because outside of the community, not many people know what Nasi Ambang is, mm. right? And then uh, to call it Peranaka Nasi Ambang got a lot of people angry because then everyone would start thinking Nasi Ambang is Peranakan, you know, yeah. when it is not. And obviously, after speaking to them, you know, they were really trying to make a, uh, a Pranakan version because they don't dare to call it Nasi Ambang. Um, but then in my head, I was like, if you had just called it Nasi Ambang in your menu, nobody would have said anything. Mm. Yeah, it would have been fine. Uh, so, yeah. Which sort of um, brings us to the next point, right? Like, where do we draw the line between cultural appreciation and cultural appropriation? Because in our history, obviously, we have seen dishes like um, Hainanese pork chop, you know, like dishes which have been adopted and shared across the different community. So another, another um, food journalist I was speaking to then asked me, if, if we didn't have this cross-cultural sharing of recipes and information, then we would have never had things like, for instance, pork satay. And mm. uh, like, first of all, pork satay exists all over Indonesia. Yeah. Um, so you don't need Singapore for that to happen. Um, but there is also a difference between situations. Like, let's say when the person or the community that invented or came up with the Hainanese pork chop, there wasn't a power dynamic at play, mm. right? So, you know, when we talk about cultural appropriation of Peranakan and Malay food, it is very specific to this current time, to this current situation. Because for the longest time, Malay food has been seen as unhealthy. Uh, fattening causes diabetes and clogs up your arteries. And then in recent times, we are seeing a revival of Pranakan cuisine, which is more or less pretty much similar things. I mean, obviously, there are some recipes which are unique to Pranakan culture and all that. But generally, more or less, a lot of things are similar. Mm. Right? So why is it that Pranakan cuisine is seen as a heritage uh, a, a, an intangible heritage meant to be preserved while Malay food, which is pretty much similar in, in cuisine, I mean in techniques and all that and ingredients, is seen as unhealthy. So that was a big stick in the mud when um, the whole Nasi Lemak thing also blew up. Mm. Right? Uh, people were digging out old articles from the very same publications which are heralding it as heritage while, while uh, you know, um, regular Nasi Lemak is seen as unhealthy. So mm. that was a lo- that caused a lot of unhappiness amongst people here. Yeah, and what exactly do you feel it? Um, what exactly do you feel accounts for this difference in perspective? You know, between Peranakan food being something that is you know precious and deserves to be preserved versus Malay food, which you describe has been you know said in the papers to be things that cause diabetes and other kind of other kinds of diseases. Yeah, well. It's, it's a bit of an ugly truth, right? Okay, so in, in university, I studied in Australia. I, I did media studies, right? There is a Japanese um, academic, I forgot his name, something Iwabuchi. Um, we'll need to, I'll need to dig, it out, dig out his name again. So he, his work was extremely influential in talking about how uh, the Japanese were producing culture for the global audience. And he uses this term, cultural odor when um and 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 the sort of uh, cultural exports that japan were producing let's say anime managed to remove 
all forms of quote-unquote cultural odor from what they reproduce. So if you look at Sailor Moon, for instance, they have blonde hair and big eyes, which are not Japanese features. So if I were to take that example in a very loose sort of way and, and use it here, we could easily say that this cultural odor around Malay food has been removed and then being transported and seen as Peranakan. Controversial opinion for sure, but there is some of that power dynamics at play, right? So let's say for, for like years and years, you know, Malay food has been seen as unhealthy and then Peranakan food comes along pretty much the same thing and is seen as heritage. If you label it Peranakan and not Malay, there's a little bit of that cultural odor has been removed. So what exactly are the unsavory bits of Malay cooking that has been removed in the presentation of this Paranakan cuisine? It's not so much, uh, I wouldn't say anything has been removed. It really is just branding. Mm. Right? So what, what, I mean, what do you feel is the difference in terms of branding? Well, if you were to serve, say, okay, let's say somebody health conscious, right? Uh, somebody who may not necessarily be so much into food, right, and has been sort of um, acclimatized to seeing Malay food as unhealthy, right, and then there is another menu calling it a Peranakan rendang. So, oh, that's like a heritage thing. Maybe I should order that. And then this person will probably never go to the Nasi Padang stall and order rendang. Hmm. So, I mean, there is also this thing about branding when it comes to Peranakan food, right? Uh, another person on Instagram, I, I won't mention, he shared, he, he's a chef, he shared a meme where he cancelled out some words on a, on a protest sign and he goes like, Pranakan food is just high sass Malay food. <laughs> which, uh, which, okay, never mind that it is, it, is, it is a little bit inaccurate because, you know, Pranakan cuisine does have its own history, its own ingredients and unique, unique set of values and all that. Um, but that's sort of reflective of the current sentiment amongst the Malay community. Hmm. I think speaking from a Chinese perspective, or just, you know, an outsider's point of view, I feel that maybe there are two reasons why Peranakan cuisine has been more widely accepted and celebrated in Singapore. I think the first reason is that Singaporeans in general are extremely class conscious. And you know how Peranakans, they used to be a, a really affluent bunch, you know, they used to have all these like um, girls, cooking and you know toiling over their food and so it has kind of emerged as a kind of royal cuisine don't you think if you put it that way yes it does sound like doesn't like it. it it's part of the peranakan myth making right because i also have friends who are actual peranakans in malaysia who mm. didn't grow up with such affluence you know yeah who and uh and there's someone else also also on the like the malaysian food scene who who sort of rails against the fact that not every Pranakan family is affluent. Mm. You know, obviously, that's what the community is associated with. Um, but I think, I think there is merit. There is merit to some, some level of thought there that, you know, uh, the branding behind Pranakan is seen as a little bit, uh, almost a little bit more premium. Yeah. Um, and I think another thing that I picked up on, you know, just interacting and speaking with Peranakan chefs and authors is that it is extremely concerned with appearances. I mean, like in terms of the way the food is presented, in terms of the way that the food is garnished, you know, I think so much of what we consider Singaporean food is considered ugly delicious, where it's more about the taste than how it looks. You know, there are a lot of brown dishes in yeah. Singapore's um, 
hawker lexicon, you know, things like satay bihun, it's like so unappealing, right? But, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, look yeah. at yeah. Pranakan food, it's all very dainty. You know, you have um, Pranakan chefs who cut everything to like micro dice. You know, recently I made this dish called Hopao, and it's yeah. actually a take on Tao Pao. So everything in that little golden pouch has to be cut like 5mm wide. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think maybe that's one of the reasons why people might be inclined to pay more for it. Yeah, possibly it could also be a relatively, I mean, we don't know how people actually live exactly, mm-hmm. right? Obviously, stories will be transmitted over the decades and all that. But did people do the exact same thing, say, 100 years ago, when we were all living in shop houses and all that? Was it, is it a modern thing to want to garnish your, your dishes so beautifully? Uh, it, you, you, of, of course, you know, you could argue that this has always been there and maybe like more affluent families would have been had a time and the resources to, to, to really do that. But how many families really do eat like that every day? Yeah. Do you really want to cut the vegetables at 5mm every <laughs> single day of your life? Yeah. I mean, you have things to do. But you have to give it to them, you know. I've been yeah. looking at images of Paranakan, like the real Nonia parana- uh, pineapple tarts for Chinese New Year. And they yeah. are so intricate. They are like jewelry almost, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think the Paranakans themselves coin a certain word to describe the intricacy um, of the technique and the craft. I think it's called snono. Yeah, that, uh, it's a Malay word. The opposite of being tarts, snono means like, you know, you are not appropriate. So do you think that word that same word can be used to um, describe Malay cooking. I think it's it's difficult to to say that because if, even if you want to talk about Malay cooking, then uh, you got to talk about its levels of refinement. Like what we have in Singapore may not be necessarily what uh, the affluent Malay families in Malaysia, for instance, are having. What mm. are the royal families in Malaysia eating? Mm. Uh, there are a couple of recipe books which are written by Malaysia's royal families and then you could also argue that it is just as refined, if not even more so, right? So it's, it's very difficult to compare uh, a concept against a yeah. much broader culinary culture. So it's, 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 it's hard to say, really. You previously described Malay food as being the cultural mother of Peranakan food. And yet, you know, there seems to be this power play here in Singapore where Peranakan food seems to have taken on its own life and has been so widely accepted by Singaporeans. Do you feel that Malay cuisine should be um, accorded greater respect because it's the mother, right? Yeah. I think it's a matter of time, really. If you, if you look at where Peranakan cuisine was, say, 10 years ago, nobody knew about it. Well, not nobody, but, you know, very few treasured and saw it for what it is. So, you know, in my line of work, I also used to interview restaurant owners. And there's one particular Peranakan restaurant in Tajong Paga, and I spoke to the owner and I asked her, what was it like opening a Peranakan restaurant like 20 years ago? And she said to me, everybody thought I was operating a Malay restaurant that there was no difference in Malay food and Peranakan food. So that struck me, right? To come from a Peranakan restauranter herself to say that when she first opened, everyone thought it was Malay food. And now the conversation has shifted. So what we are having right now may not be what might happen in the future after all, 
right? Mm-hmm. I think it is fantastic that Pranakan cuisine is having its time in the limelight. It, it truly is unique to Singapore and the other straight settlements at Malacca and Penang. But it's certainly not something in which you can find elsewhere. And the fact is, um, Pranakan cuisine is facing a renaissance. Mm-hmm. You know, it was, it was slow dancing in history for the longest time. In fact, I was just telling uh, one of my friends... Um, uh, how in primary school, I used to have Peranakan friends in Malay class, and then eventually they were pulled out to sit into Chinese class. So it is like they were being, you know, changed in a way by the Singapore system to be less Peranakan at a point of time in their lives where they had to erase that part of themselves. So the fact that it is being celebrated right now, I think is a beautiful thing. And we're obviously seeing a lot of uh, uh, people stepping forward to sort of preserve uh, Pranakan heritage in a more meaningful way. Like uh, like a couple of uh, months ago, at least like a year or so, I, I came across an Instagram account that was promoting uh, Baba Malay. You know, mm-hmm. even though you can easily take a Malay class or some CC or whatever, there are obviously words and, you know, um, uh, things from Hokkien and the different Chinese dialects used in Pranakan Malay, which you won't otherwise be able to learn, mm-hmm. right, if you were to take a Malay class. So I think it's it's beautiful that Pranakan culture is facing a renaissance. But I also think it's also a matter of time before more people start sharing the uh, family recipes, you know, more people from the community stepping forward to talk about their heritage. I really do think it's a matter of time. Um, speaking of this exact phrase, you use this phrase to describe when, you know, when this Violet Wound incident happened. You said it was about time that we opened this can of worms and start talking about this. So yeah. what, what do you exactly mean by that? Do you mean that previously there was this simmering tension between the Malay community and the Peranakan community? <laughs> no, not, nothing, that, nothing of that sort. I wouldn't call it a simmering tension. But there is a, uh, a level of discontent among the, amongst the Malay community when somebody describes Kue like Onde Onde as Peranakan. Mm. You know, people who actually get riled up about that. Uh, and I've had many conversations with people who are in FMB or, you know, are sort of associated with FMB, sort of expressing the discontent to me. And uh, there is really no point keeping these conversations behind closed doors when it needs to be happening on a more uh, public level. But we need to have it in a way that moves society forward rather than, you know, simmer in that discontent and, and talk about our differences all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we all talk about multiracial Singapore. We all talk about racial harmony. Um, and then what does it really take to get there? It really is a lot of hard work and having honest dialogue and honest conversations. And a big part of why these conversations are happening right now, um, I would say because the needle has shifted on racial discourse around the globe. Minorities all around the world are no longer held back from wanting to talk about their experiences growing up as a minority. A lot of it has to do with BLM, mm. which has totally shifted a needle in how we talk about race. Um, so yeah, the paradigm has shifted. Um, people are no longer content sitting around in their discontent, ironically. And uh, these conversations are not going to go anywhere. It will just keep growing stronger and hopefully in a way that moves our country forward. Mm. Do you think racism actually, um, how do you think it really manifests in Singapore? I know that it exists, but I was just wondering for you, how does, how does it, how do you perceive racism? Outside of food? Wow. Um, it is very subtle. 
Like uh, for instance, I would back in school, back in uni, when I used to, I would take uh, you know a taxi to NUS because I was late. Uh, and then a taxi driver will say something like, oh, wow, Malay also can go university. And, you know, it's this sort of small little comments that stick with you. Again, intent versus impact. The taxi driver was probably not trying to be racist, but that was a racist comment and the impact was felt. Um, little things, little things like that, you know. Uh, and obviously, uh, you know, growing up, you have friends who make fun of other people, like make fun of the Indian kid for being smelly or make fun of the, the Malay kid for being bad at math and being lazy, things like that, right? It forms, it forms a sort of cultural environment that you grow up in which you are a little bit more sensitive to how people perceive you because of the color of your skin. Mm. That sort of extends to food, right? Like you wonder, uh, is my food as valuable as other people's food? Am I as valuable as other people? Am I truly equal in this society that claims to be equal? You know, these are questions you grow up in and these are things you grapple with as, as you grow up in this, this country. Um, of course, you know, uh, somebody else will come and say, oh, things are not as bad as in the US or like South Africa or whatever, you know, having a cop putting a knee on your neck and things like that. But it's never, it's never a, uh, a race to the bottom right? Every country has its unique circumstances. And for as long as racism exists in some way or form, no matter how big or small, it needs to be disposed of. Mm, I totally agree. And I love what you said about racism being subtle, because yeah. growing up as a, someone from the majority race in Singapore, I, I guess I've been privileged enough to never experience racism until I moved to Melbourne. And that was when I realized that racism is not always when someone says like, Ohio, do you on the street when you're not Japanese? You know, it could, yeah. present, itself, <laughs> it could present itself in very subtle ways. Like, you yeah. know. Um, it could be like a cashier in the supermarket throwing a plastic bag at you. And you wonder, <laughs> because I'm Chinese? Yeah. You know, and, then, and then she's super nice to the next white customer, for instance. It's yeah. little things yeah, and I think it's always a very fine line because I remember, you know, I, I was working as a chef at um, Melbourne City when I, was when I was living in the city and my sous chef would always ask me to cook rice every single staff meal. It's like everyone has a task, right? And instead right. of getting to cook the pasta or cooking like, you know, maybe like a um, vegetable dish or a meat dish, I always get tasked to cook the rice. <laughs> <laughs> like one step away from making you do the accounting yeah man <laughs> <laughs> and you know it's just very subtle you know you don't know if it's racism or is it you know oh you know i feel that maybe you cook rice better so i'm asking you to do it so i would love to know if you know since you know that racism ex exists and you are on the receiving end of it how do you feel when you hear Singapore as being positioned as this country that is multiracial and harmonious, does it sit well with you? I think it's a good aspiration to have. Does it sit well with me? Uh, yes, it does. Because at the very least, I know that this country has a commitment to make lives better for everybody. Right? That is a lot better than, say, than sweeping it under the rug. Um, that said, I think a lot has changed this year, you know, with the elections and, and things like that, and ministers coming out and saying how young people want to talk about race is a lot different from how we want to talk about it in previous generations. 
uh, and that's a good thing, right? Because ours is a society meant for us to inherit, right? It's going to, it's, it's our country. And if we're going to inherit this country, this society, uh, although I would say that we already have, because I'm in my mid thirties, for goodness sake, um, you know, it's, it's something that we need to work towards, right? It, it's not, it's not going to come to us automatically, especially now if you have like uh, ethnic minorities coming forward to share their experiences on racism and wanting to sort of push the envelope a little bit on what is okay to talk about. Uh, I feel like that needs to be embraced. Mm. And do you think racism is more of a, gener- a generational thing? Uh, I think largely I would say yes. Um, you know, again, intent versus impact. What, maybe racist to us in our generation may not be considered racist to people who are older, who may have grown up in a different time, a different set of values. Uh, in fact, even if you, if you looked at, um, you know, speeches made by certain politicians in the past, and if the person said that now, this person will be in so much trouble, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the situation is always changing. Yeah, it's funny because I've been speaking with older Singaporeans and from what I know, it seems like a very cohesive society where like all races kind of interacted with one another. And yet you see a lot of people from the older generation still being really racist. So I'm just trying to like make sense of the whole situation. You know, how can you have one thing while this manifests? Yeah. So I guess the thing about growing up minority, growing up uh, in both Singapore and Australia, you've learned not to take it personally, right? Like these people are the product of their upbringing. It may not necessarily be the best upbringing. It may not be a time where people were a little more, um, the lack of a better word, woke about these things. Um, so I tend to approach it not from a place of anger, but from a place of understanding, from a place where I know these people just need to be enlightened and educated a little bit more and to be able to step outside of themselves and their mindsets, you know? So it's, it's, it could be because I'm just older and mellower. Uh, if I was younger, I would have, I would have uh, you know, reacted in a much different way. Mm. And you talked about having a platform. How do you see your platform as being, you know, a force for good? Yeah. Um, well, basically, I started my, my blog, really. Uh, to share a little bit more of my cultural, uh, culinary cultural identity, recipes, things like that. Um, at first, I just kind of did it for myself. But then there were people coming up to me, I'm not so much coming up to me, but, but messaging me saying that, you know, this is really refreshing to see. Uh, I would like to see more content from you. I mean, if I didn't have a full-time job, that would have been possible. Um, but yeah, in, in general, just, just talking about Southeast Asian cuisines, uh, you know, what, what, what we can find, say, like the other day I made sambal mata, which is a Balinese sambal. Mm-hmm. I've had it before, it's delicious. Yeah. yeah, so I think people were messaging me and then I would tell them, you know, there are 300 different types of sambals across the region and most people don't know that, right? They would just think of sambal as, you know, the sambal you have in Nasi Lama or like Sambal Belacan and that's it. But there is an immense diversity from like the South Thailand, the South of Philippines down to like you know, Borneo and Kalimantan and all these spaces. There's so many different types, 300 different types. Um, so I think it really is about shining a spotlight on regional cuisines and what it can be rather than and trying to take people out of the Singapore context and seeing Malay cuisine as part of a larger tapestry of cultures around Southeast Asia. Because, you know, we mentioned Rumpa even earlier. 
couple of years ago, I went to Cambodia for a cooking class at Siem Reap. And they have their own version of rumpa, which is the same thing, the same ingredients, but they call it krung, if I remember correctly. Mm. You know, uh, it, was, it was odd because I was in a cooking class and then the chef of the hotel was telling me, oh, put all these ingredients in a blender. Then I'm just like, wait a minute, isn't this just rumpa? Mm. So it's quite hilarious, really. Um, even like our, uh, the Onde Onde that we know and love here uh, so well, you know, it's called Klepon in parts of Indonesia. Yeah. And when I was in that cooking class, we were making a version of Onde Onde just without the pandan. Mm. I was just like mind blown and how much similarities and commonalities there is between the cuisines of Southeast Asia. Uh, so in that sense, it's very hard to see Malay cooking and Malay cuisine as a standalone it is very much part of a much larger picture. Mm. Like just a couple of days ago, I came across an Instagram profile that um, talked about this dish at home, which we call pindang, right? Which is like a sour seafood-based dish. Uh, in Malaysia, it's called singgang. And then if you were to look at the Philippines, it's called sinigang, which is like similar techniques, similar ingredients, similar flavor profiles. So mm. yeah, I, and I, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed the level of um, cross-cultural thinking, like, you know, uh, no cuisine is a standalone. It is always part of a much larger tapestry of cultures. Mm, for sure. I mean, I see so many similarities in cuisines all over the world, you know. Yeah. I was making Hakka Abeka seeds uh, yeah. last year. And then I realized that in Mexico, you have exactly the same thing. You know, it's crazy. crazy. Yeah, you do. I can't remember what, what it's called, but they kind of treat it like, you know, chicken soup and dumplings. So those would be the dumplings in their soup. Wow. Yeah. Interesting, right? I mean, they would use yeah, tapioca. So hmm? It is so far apart. I know. So, I mean, sometimes it's not really a cross-pollination of ideas, but sometimes maybe people just come to the same conclusion, you know? Yeah. Of what tastes good. Yeah. You know, <laughs> speaking of a platform, you, you spoke about how Violet Oon is trying to kind of... Um, provide some form of representation and you described her establishment as kind of like a, a museum, right? Yeah, yeah. So I was just wondering for people with a platform like you and like Singapore Noodles, um, how do you think we can go forward and be respectful of someone else's cuisine? But at the same time, you know, having this pressure of having to know everything before you can step forward and share something, you know, how, how do you grapple with it? I mean, I think we have to share what we know. Uh, we can't pretend that we know what we don't know, right? I, I face this all the time, especially when I was a younger food writer, when I didn't know as much as I do now. Uh, I would have to go to an omakase restaurant and write about it from a voice of authority. And as a fresh graduate, when a $350 meal uh, is pretty much mind-blowing, <laughs> You know, it's sometimes a matter of taking a step back and taking a neutral stance, if you have to. Um, but in general, I feel like maybe we shouldn't talk about or write about things that we don't know as well about. Because the last thing you want to do is disseminate wrong information, right? Mm. Um, and never ever peddle an opinion as a fact. Let's say, uh, you know, somebody wants to add curry leaves into a rendang. I mean, and that sounds just gross to me, but if that's what you've been doing your family for your whole life, then all the power to you, but call it your family's recipe, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's fine. 
because we all have our personal histories, we all have our family histories. And I think what makes our food scene even more vibrant is that more people are sharing it as long as it comes from a place of honesty. Yeah, I think that's the key, you know. I think for the longest time, that was my hesitation um, behind starting something like Singapore Noodles because I felt like on one hand, I really wanted to share a very, like, just a range of perspectives and have it not just be the Chinese perspective or Chinese recipes or Chinese dishes because so many other blogs and YouTube do that. And I think that it's a true disservice to Singaporean cuisine. Chinese I, mean, I think thing, it's, a, it's hmm? a fantastic thing to do. It, it, you know, it, it, it is, it, it's great because uh, we all have our audiences and uh, I mean, I mean, I've seen some of your posts and, and even though it's, it's not from your own country background, the fact that you are making it and sharing it, reproducing it, uh, at the same time being conscious of the fact that this is your own sort of take on it. And I think, I think that's a beautiful thing and I think that's totally fine. It, 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 in no way to me is it cultural appropriation. I mean, it's not like you're, you're taking something and calling it... Uh, you, you, made a, you made a biryani, right? Like, is it today or yesterday? Yesterday. You know, yeah, yesterday. Yeah, so it's not like you're taking and calling a Chinese biryani from 100 years ago, 200 years ago recipe, right? It's, 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 it's something, it's your own take. You use filet, for instance, and, and circumstances will always change. And I think that's all right. Yeah, exactly. I, you know, I, I just feel like heritage has to be this thing that is vibrant and that is alive, you know, rather than yeah. dead. And I exactly. think we should adapt and move with the times as you said earlier you know but at the same time because this thing is so sacred and so precious to so many people i feel that it's very very personal and that you are almost stepping on sacred ground and you have to be really really careful with what you say how you position it and how you know just the tone and everything yeah yeah i think a couple of weeks ago i think you were sharing that little mooncake thing uh, oh right! <laughs> yeah, people were like saying, "Oh, this is uh, what was it in the US or was it in Australia?" Yeah. Okay. So there was this Instagram account called God of Cookery, and I think um, he kind of positioned the account as it being a like Chinese cooking being a form of protest. Okay. Um, so every single post that he uploaded was like an angry post, you know, talking about how we have been colonized and how white people have been trying to take our cuisine. And <laughs> I think it got so militant to the point that, so, so this Caucasian guy was sharing a recipe for, for mooncakes. And the thing is, this Caucasian guy was uh, someone from, you know, someone who had a platform. Right. So he was trying to share mooncakes with his white audience. And I think his mooncake actually sound, sounded like the kind of mooncakes that we get in Singapore, which is very innovative, very like no rules. So it was like a snow skin mooncake, I think, with, with um, chocolate ganache, which sounds completely normal in the Singaporean context. But I feel yeah. like maybe it's not that common in China, like in traditional yeah. China, con- Chinese context. And so yeah. this person took a lot of offense and said, you know, this person should not even be allowed to share this recipe you know you're completely misguiding people and it just went so extreme to the point where he was like you you shouldn't be even be buying your mold from amazon you should get it from a bakery and i was like what is it 
<laughs> wow, that means we didn't do, do any shopping online at all. I mean, I think, I think that that account represents a point of view and it does have uh, his own audience. Uh, it sounds a lot like this person probably also grew up with some level of racism when it comes to his food. A couple of uh, a couple of months back, I also came across an article uh, on a I can't remember where was it Eater or something where the writer wrote about how bubble tea is seen as extremely unhealthy in the states. Mm. When in Singapore, it's like such a popular thing, right? And I'm just like I just sat there reading it, just like wow, the minority experience when it comes to food all over the, all over the world is very much similar, huh? Your food will always be seen as the other, the cultural other, the unhealthy one. So, I mean, it sounds like this person, this, this angry, angry person you mentioned, does, does have a point of view and it probably is like the result of, you know, his or her experience growing up as an Asian minority in a country, yeah. you know, where you are subject to all these things all the time. And with that comes a greater sensitivity to such things. Yeah, true. Uh, the problem comes when, when it becomes borderless. You know, when, when somebody in Singapore is reading it and like wondering, what, what the hell is so offensive about this? You know, so like what what's offensive to him may not be offensive to somebody else. Yeah, exactly. So I think it's all about the lens uh, that we put on before we see something, you know, for because sure, it's yeah. all so subjective. Like, for example, I think one of the reasons why this Paranakan slash Nonia Nasi Ambang um, yeah. made me so perplexed was because the exact same thing was happening in Melbourne. So... Uh, wow. We have this really famous Italian pizza shop, and one day they make uh, they made a Chinese bolognese pizza. Okay. So, like, they use the word Chinese, you know, in front of the flavor of the pizza, and okay. but but you know, after tasting it, I thought it was genius because you know what they did was, um, so instead of using tomato sauce, you know, as yeah. the liquid in the bolognese. They actually use mustard stock, which is like super common in Chinese cooking. And then instead of using tomato paste, they use like gochujang. Okay, I give it to them that gochujang <laughs> is, actually, is actually Korean. But, <laughs> but I really appreciate the creativity, you know. And right. I realized that no one got offended, you know. The Italians were not affected. The Chinese didn't say anything. Everyone was just like having a good time e eating that pizza. You know, and I was just thinking, is, is that because the two nationalities or the two races kind of saw themselves as equals? I think it's, it's a very different situation, right? Like you call it like a Chinese pizza. Um, the problem would happen when, let's say, they would take the Xiaolong Pao and call it Italian. Um, Maybe that's a little less extreme, but maybe if you were to take, uh, let's see. Okay, so for instance, um, there was also this controversy in the US, right, on fur. Mm. So it was a couple of years ago, uh, when they had a white chef teaching people how to eat fur, how to make fur. Uh, I think it was on Bon Appetit. This was, of course, before, before the current team came in and all that. And it caused a great controversy, right? Because people were just like... Um, why is it a white guy representing a Vietnamese dish? Why can't this title have taken a Vietnamese chef? You know, somebody who would at least be able to represent his own cuisine. So there is also that, a little bit of that, right? It's, it's quite different from, say, uh, when you're in Melbourne and then they call it a Chinese pizza and obviously nobody's going to get offended because that in itself wasn't offensive because you were not taking anything from 
Chinese and Asian culture in general. Mm. It was a little bit quirky in the fact that his gochujang itself is, <laughs> is hilarious, you know, but it wasn't, it didn't take anything from anyone. Yeah. So, but if you were to take like nasi ambeng, for instance, when the general population may not necessarily know what it is, and then you slap Peranakan on it, a lot of people felt like it runs the risk of another dish being co-opted into the Peranakan culinary canon rather than something being seen as, as something that is from the Malay community. And then when you, when you take that and you consider the fact that it is typically being used historically in religious occasions, I think it was the perfect time bomb, really. Mm. Is it true so, that um, nasi ambing does not feature in Narnia cooking at all? Not at all. I mean, it is, it is a very much a, a Javanese thing. Uh, you know, it was brought over to Singapore from, from Javanese immigrants, like, you know, my great-grandparents yeah. and all that. Um, but no, it is not. It is not even a dish per se. It is a method of presentation. Because mm-hmm. the dishes that we have around it are separate dishes itself. So it is really a way of eating rather than an actual dish. I see. I was reading up on, uh, on Reddit about this whole thing because I, w- I really okay. wanted to understand what exactly were Singaporeans, uh, you know, Singaporean Malay so upset about because it felt like it was such a complex issue. It wasn't just the naming of it, but it was also the price point, right? Oh. I mean, I'm okay with the price point, but that said, a lot of people will be mad at me for saying that because I, have, I don't really have any qualms paying, say, $13 on Nasi Lemak. And I know this comes from a position of privilege because I can uh, buy such things at those prices when somebody else who may not necessarily would be really angry at having to pay such prices for a dish that he or she can have at a much cheaper price. So I think, I think what we are dealing with right now is gentrification. Mm. Gentrification of food uh, is, you know, is pricing it $150. I can't remember how much it was. The gentrification of Malay food. Mm. Was it? It was, you know, it really was. Uh, do I personally find it offensive? No, I don't. Um, because I do know that, you know, they do run a certain type of restaurant with a certain type of rental, a certain type of team set up, you know, and salaries need to match up with what they are paying people and what they're charging people. Uh, it's, it's very much different from, say, a hawker stall putting out nasi ambang. You just cannot compare those two. You have to, you have to take operating costs in mind and also the fact that it is still a business, right? And a business is meant to, to be profitable and to be able to pay the people. Yeah. So, you know, and in order for any cuisine to be preserved, I suppose, like, we have to be able to, you know, we have to be comfortable with raising the prices, right? For example, yeah. nasi ambeng. I mean, uh, nasi ambeng. I don't yeah. think the problem is with Violet Wynn charging that much. It's more that we, we should be able to pay more for traditional Malay nasi ambeng, right? Yeah, for sure. Uh, and, you know, this is also another conversation altogether about how some people perceive nasi padang to be expensive. Uh, but then if you think about it, like uh, heritage nasi padang uh, eateries that would maybe charge $13 for, you know, a dish with a big piece of chicken and, and, and uh, vegetables and this and all this stuff, you know, uh, which to some people might be expensive. Um, but then if you look at it, if you look at the, the quality of food that you get, the number of techniques, the number of hours put into preparing a simple dish, uh, and then you would see that it's actually quite affordable. Because that same dish, if you could transport it to a super hip, let's say there's a modern Malay restaurant that opens in Kiongsik or whatever, you know, chances are they're going to charge an arm and a leg for that piece of chicken which you just ordered. 
you know, it might come in a tank, uh, a two to three in a little plate with nice garnish and all that. But the techniques, uh, the ingredients, the time taken to prepare a dish like that is pretty much the same. Yeah. Uh, so, so, you know, which, which, which brings me to my point, right? Like, um, why should we complain about the price of heritage food when we know that producing it takes time and effort? Uh, and obviously, people have to get paid, right? So, hmm. yeah. Do you think that is the main thing that should be done to preserve Malay cuisine? You know, that adjustment of price point and people being comfortable with paying more? Uh, definitely, I think people need, need to be comfortable paying more for, for Malay food. And uh, this is also a conversation that I've had with several owners of Nasi Padang eateries that they do have customers saying that their prices are too steep. Uh, you know, but at the same time, these are not places which, uh, which have massive central kitchens and factories like, I don't know, like, you know, the, the, the food courts, you know, where they are able to produce their food en masse and be able to charge a certain price point. These, these are not. I mean, some of them may have central kitchens, but they are not operating at such a massive scale where you would see a massive reduction of prices. Um, so for sure, especially for Malay food that takes time and takes effort, if you, if you can pay this, that amount for Peranakan food, you can pay that amount for Malay food. Yes, I totally agree, you know. Exactly. This has been so illuminating, you know. I came into this chat feeling very nervous. <laughs> but why? I, I don't know. I thought it was going to be like a very fiery argument or, or not argument, but fiery conversation because it's so touchy, right? Such a sensitive. Yeah, I, and I, but, was, I was just thinking, oh my God, I'm going to come on this podcast and the whole entire country is going to hate me or something. <laughs> Why hate? I don't know. It's 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 a difficult topic to to touch on. You know, it's uh, uh, at the same time, you know, and I also I also believe that we we do this because we believe in a better Singapore, right? We want to make it a better place for everybody. Um, with that comes some level of hard work. We may not be putting on, you know, we may not be piling on the bricks like our forefathers did, but we are building our society in a different way, uh, and it's hard work. And I think this is what it looks like. Yeah, fantastic. Thanks for spending your time with me. I appreciate you having me here. So that wraps up another episode of the Singapore Noodles podcast. To stay updated, you can check out the website sgpnoodles.com or follow us on sgpnoodles on Instagram. Also, Christmas is coming and if you're still looking for Christmas gifts, then do check out our planner for the new year, which is a guide to learning about festivals that we celebrate in Singapore and it encourages you to cook traditional food through the year. Every purchase of the planner goes to making Singapore Noodles a more sustainable platform and it allows for the time and the resources that go into the documentation of recipes and stories. As always, thank you all for the support and the love that you have shown me and Singapore Noodles and I hope that this platform has inspired you to keep Singaporean food heritage alive in your own way. <laughs>